So, did you see that Bring Me the Horizon dressed up as the Spice Girls for the Brit Awards last weekend? I did, but I when they originally posted about it, I didn't even realize it was intentional. Like, they I had either. the side-by-side, and I glanced at it. And now looking it up and, like, seeing it, like, one stacked on top of the other, I'm like, okay. Like, yeah, but... It just felt so <laughs> random. Like, I saw... I actually saw the headline on Loudwire... Um, and Rabob sent it to me and I was like, what? Like, what? Why? <laughs> of all the things you could impersonate, it just feels like the most random thing of all time. Well, and also like Ollie's outfit is like very much not close. Like I was going to say, like, okay, yeah. Right. It's like shimmer and shimmer. Like I get it. But Ollie's is like, I like that. I think that like I looked, I mean, you know, I looked at him first and like he didn't match. So I was like, oh, they just like kind of sort of accidentally matched. The side by side did it. But I was just like, what? why is 2020 got to be so ridiculous and over the top already? Like, why couldn't they dress up as like Limp Biscuit or something? At least that would make a little bit more sense. Or if you're going to do that, you have to wear the exact outfits. Like exactly. The like, actual, the... like the deep V's and the super short skirts and everything like that would make it. That would be a statement. Exactly. Yeah. But I guess bring me the horizon. I mean, it, we should have known with that EP that they released with fucking a 25 minute song and a Halsey feature that they just threw in the fucking trash can uh, that they are just going to be as random as humanly possible from here on out. But whatever. Um christmas of all things like my heart ached for whatever like poor digital label people had <laughs> something on christmas like oh i just, know hurts me. so random so this episode i have Mackenzie hall on with me Hi. to do the deepest dive that anyone has ever done on all time low which i'm very excited about uh Mackenzie was my boss a long long time ago in a land far far away at alternative press and you have two label jobs under your belt right now and she is saved for finn from the punk rock mbma i don't know how i keep coming across neon experts but Mackenzie is also <laughs> a neon expert <laughs> thanks for which coming like on the show which is like a very dubious honor which yeah. is like a very strange thing to have to brag about like i don't know if that's what i want but this is who i am <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how but i have had three guests now on the show brandy finn and now you who are just neon experts and it's so funny that i keep coming across these people but they are coming out of the woodwork for note to scene <laughs> i mean you know like i said that we have to stick together we're you know such a minority you gotta stick together i love it so yeah so we today we're gonna dive all the way through all time lows history and really unpack their two trajectories, which we were talking about before the show the other night, and it's really interesting how you can almost fold their career in half, and they did the same thing kind of twice. But we'll get into that in a little bit, and we'll talk about all the new stuff and kind of where they go from here. But first off, I want to do a quick listener question. Dear Tyler, and note to scene, I've only been listening to the podcast since it came back, but I've listened to some of your older episodes, and I have to say I really enjoy them, especially the worst albums of 2017, which I agree, which I agree with a lot of them. That was one of my favorite episodes Matt and I did in the first version of the show. It was 2017 was just a shit show front to back. But uh, he goes on, <laughs> what I wanted to ask you is, what are some albums you think rendered a band's career dead? For me, two albums come to mind. Good Morning Revival by Good Charlotte and Genesis by Woe Is Me. What albums do you think of? Thanks and can't wait for more episodes. Well, first off, Hayden, thanks so much for writing in. 
Uh, this is a great question. Uh, I've actually had a couple conversations about this with some other people uh, recently. We were trying to do some sort of listicle or editorial feature on the site about how bands going pop or changing their sound kind of destroyed their trajectories. Um, it's still in the works. We're kind of flushing out some ideas, but this definitely lines up with it. And there are so many examples, um, but there's, I think there's a lot that tie, a lot that ties into a band, you know, rendering themselves dead. And it's kind of more difficult than it would seem to pinpoint just pure changes in sounds or one album that fucked an entire band over. But the three that I came up with are Seosin's In Search of Solid Ground, Chiodos, Illuminatio, and the Red Jumpsuit Apparatus's second album, Lonely Road. Uh, Seosin had so much hype off that first self-titled album, and, you know, for whatever reason, I think they were on Virgin, same with Red Jumpsuit, um, and, or maybe they were on Capital. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was just so obvious that the songwriting was incredibly, incredibly botched on that second record and the hooks weren't there and the, the, the band kind of felt like it was over at that point. Um, Chiodos Illuminatio, obviously, I love that record so much. It is my favorite Chiodos record, but for whatever reason, Brandon didn't stick, and uh, everyone just wanted Craig back, and by the time they got Craig back, the shit show was over, and that record is incredibly underrated, but that really fucked Chiodos over as far as their overall trajectory goes, because on the cycle before that, they were literally getting radio play, the Bone Palace cycle blew them the fuck up so much, and then, you know, all the drama happened, and the fallout with Craig, but definitely go, if you've never heard Thermacare by Chiodos, that demo, that was going to be the first single from the third Chiodos album, and uh, Craig went and took that song and put it on the Druggies record, but go listen to that demo if you never have, and then the Red Jumpsuit Apparatus, it is just ridiculous how big that band was after that first album, that album is platinum, and that is absolutely ridiculous, but um, Lonely Road that was, was like all anyone could talk about. Literally that year and that summer. I mean, Your Guardian Angel, Face Down, False Pretense, so many bangers front to back on that record. And then it's like they just like I regularly forget that that band is like quote unquote a scene band because Face Down was like fully in the mainstream. Like that totally. was like on all the radio. Th- like I remember like being in high school and like driving around, and that was the only thing on the radio. Straight up, like you could not avoid that song. And uh, I'll never forget, like, even in high school, and I was in high school in, like, from 2010 to 2013-ish, and my English teacher, like, my sophomore year, like, played that and won, like, a PowerPoint presentation or something. It's so (laughs) crazy how that band survived because of that album, and, you know, for whatever reason, they're still a band, and they just put out one of the worst songs I've ever heard. I think it's called In a Galaxy Far, Far Away in L.A. or some shit. It is literally one of the worst songs I've ever heard. Um, but it was so ridiculous how they had such a massive album. And I mean, one listen through on Lonely Road, even the singles that they pushed, which I still don't even mind pen and paper, which was one of the singles. 
Um, but front to back, like it's just not even comparable to the two albums. The songwriting decreased in value so much, and I don't know if that me- just meant more hands. I've never looked up like the songwriting credits on that record or anything, but um, it felt like a different band at that point, and it was so obvious that it was over just as fast as it started. But those are my three. What do you got, Mackenzie? Well, mine are really funny because when you sent over the question, I like had these two, and now I'm just realizing as I'm looking them both up that they both have all-time low connections, which is oh, really funny. Oh, no shit. Um, Perfect. I just want to say that that was not intentional, but it worked out, so it's very funny. So my first one that like is truly like a tragedy for me, but is the truth, it would be Weird Kids by We Are The In Crowd. Damn. Okay. Um, I am was i know they're like kind of getting back together but we're not sure so like i am a huge we're the in crowd fan and i think they were one of those bands that like really were a pioneer in a lot of ways and like really with their first two releases like had everybody's attention and then when weird kids came out it just didn't click for some reason i think like i mean the best thing that ever happened i believe was the lead single and it was good but like the rest of it just didn't stick with people for whatever reason mm-hmm and that was like they really faded so quickly after that happened. Like it was, it was like just like such a shame. Yeah, Tay was felt like almost the scene's kind of next female superstar. She was like it was like again like <laughs> like on Warp Tour you had so few like role models in that way and so few women to rally around and like she like I just remember like they were one of the bands that like watching like just improve and just become a tighter better band over the years was like night and day it was like their first tour like you could definitely tell they were like new to performing but by the time that they were on warp tour like 2012 like she fucking owned that stage like she had it like she was it like she was it was like magnetic so i like and again like weird kids i think like I don't know. It was like the best thing that ever happened was good, but like it just couldn't like nothing stuck. Like for some reason that just like dissolved it. Um mm-hmm. which is such a shame. But if they come back, like that I'm I'm super interested to see, especially cuz I love her solo stuff as Saint. Um and then my other one, so and again, so that's connected to Dallas Gascard cuz he had a feature on one of their other songs. Um and then Sing It Loud also had an Alex Gascard feature on their first album Come Around, which was like one of like the best like single release like debut single releases for a band like that was 2008 on warp tour it was like the perfect time to be like a neon pop punk band and uh they also like had one of like the best stage presences and then they released everything collide which i think was just like them trying to be like a little more alternative and moody and just didn't it like i remember listening to that record and like as you will see throughout this podcast, like I am like a very resentful optimist. Like I have to look on the bright side and I hate it about myself. <laughs> and I remember listening to this record and like trying so hard to like it and being like, I love Sing It Loud. I'm going to like this record. They finally really something else besides Come Around. I'm going to like it. And like, no matter how many times I listened to it, I was like, no, no, <laughs> I can't do it. You can't <laughs> do it. That's so funny. I, I will, I'm 100% uh, on your side that come around, the bridge in come around is top five neon moments of all time, hands down. Oh, it's like, between like, and also like, two of the best features on a debut record, like Alex Gaskar on No One Can Touch Us, fantastic feature, yep. and then Pierre on We're Not Afraid, like, what? 
Like, right? They like, were... I, like that would be un in like a later time to be like, oh yeah, in 2008 we had Motion City soundtrack and All Time Low on our debut record. Like, no, what? straight up, straight up. It they were such an interesting band because they were on Epitaph and Epitaph, you know, like that was kind of their neon band because it was interesting how Epitaph didn't really dip their feet into anything. I mean, that's where the Justin Pierre feature kind of came from. But other than Sing It Loud and this really small neon band called Farewell, I can't. I don't know of any off the top of my head that were also on Epitaph, but that second Sing It Loud record is incredibly underrated, and Sugar Sweet is my favorite Sing It Loud song. <laughs> really? You Straight like up. this record? I love that wow. record. Yeah, I got into it yeah. way, way later, but I love Sugar Sweet. I think that's the best song that band ever wrote. Oh my god, that's fascinating to me. I because I remember it was like one of the first records I like by a band I loved that I had to admit I didn't like. Like when you're in that like late teen age where you're like learning the difference between like a band you love and they can release something you don't like and you're like retraining your brain, like that was it for me. Totally, totally. And I mean, I totally got it back then why fans weren't into it. I wasn't a big Sing It Loud fan when all that stuff was happening. I think I had like come around on a compilation disc for something. I don't know if it was Warp Tour or the Take Action Tour or something like that. But um, I never really got yeah. into them. But years later, I dove back into them because I had never listened to either of those records front to back. And I loved everything Collide. I think it's a fantastic like alt rock record. And that's what it is, you know, like... I don't think, as we'll touch on later in the episode, and as we've touched on on previous episodes, these bands don't know how to grow up. And some of them had an identity crisis after their first album. And I feel like that was Sing It Loud. <laughs> and as I'm sure we'll talk more, at that point in time, in like 2008 to 2010, like when so much technology was changing around music, it used to be like you were like kind of a one hit wonder and like it was so much harder to make it. And if you didn't like see immediate success on your subsequent records, you were just dropped. And like, that was just how the music industry worked. So I think there's like super interesting things to look at it. Like the growing pains of these artists that are coming up through that time where like, that was no longer the roadmap. Totally. Like you could like have a fan base on your own. That wasn't just built around writing huge records that would sell a million copies on warp tour. Totally. It was such an interesting time. I mean, like streaming, like obviously streaming services weren't even a thing back then, but you still had bands who were able to gain momentum on MySpace and, and pure volume. I mean, shout out to pure volume. <laughs> <laughs> Saved a lot of us. Right? Exactly. So, all right, Hayden, again, thank you so much for writing in. If anyone else has any questions about anything, apparently we're the Neon Podcast now. So if you have any <laughs> small-ass Neon questions about bands you don't think anyone else has ever heard of, write in uh, at notetoscene at gmail.com, and I'd love to answer your questions on the show. But, okay, it is time to dive into all-time lows history. That's what I have it labeled as, labeled as in my notes for the show, which uh, I never thought I'd history. be here. That's for sure. <laughs> I never thought I'd be here. Um, so, okay, Mackenzie, I am not well-versed in the pre-So Wrong It's Right era of the band, except for the Put Up or Shut Up EP, which was their first release <laughs> on Hopeless. So walk me through as much as you can pre-Put Up or Shut Up, because now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have two uh, unconfirmed notes that I just have lodged in my head somewhere about the history of this band, and I don't know where they uh -oh. came from. 
Did they start <laughs> as a Blink-182 cover band, and did they get their name from a New Found Glory song? I believe both of those things are right, or at least have been said offhandedly by the band. Okay. Uh, they could be trolling us. Like, who knows? Right, like they, for you sure. Know, they're, <laughs> they're jokesters, for sure. But I, I believe the Newfound Glory, like, getting it from the Newfound Glory song is 100% true. Like, I think they've said that multiple times. Uh-huh. Um, and I know, like, maybe, like, you know, Blink-182 cover band might be overstated. <laughs> I think what, like, they mean, at least, is that, like, a lot of their early, like, learning to play music and learning to play together as a band was covering Blink-182 songs. Got it. Um, But at least from, like, listening to them talk about, like, their super early years, like, they were, like, in a lot of ways, they're just, like, that quintessential scene band where they, like, all have, like, super cute, like, ways of meeting each other in, like, middle school where I think, like, Again, like I'm talking off the cuff, so I'm probably getting these wrong, but like Jack and Ryan met because one of them was wearing a face to face shirt and like they sat behind each other in like history class or something like that. And so it's just like them meeting as friends and like all coming together to like be the like cool pop punk band of their high school, like writing songs after school every day. And like, and then they like really lived the dream in the sense that like they got signed like. I think just before they graduated and that was straight what they went into, which I think is an important thing to remember about them too, is Uh that like, especially as we're entering like a later phase of like people coming to writing and being in bands later in life, like they were a band that like they released their debut record when they were like 19, super, super young. And like, so the fact that like they have the longevity that they did really has to be applauded just in the sense that like, they like always were so committed to being this band. Ten percent. Um, I mean, we hear it in that new song that they released. Uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but uh, some kind of disaster. But he says, "I close my eyes at seventeen. Yeah, that's like that's really it. Like, and I think like they also are so cognizant of that, and they're sure to always hark back to that. That they were like, we didn't have a plan B. Like, it wasn't like if you asked them about their college plans, like most of them were like, we didn't really have any. Like, we just, like, this is what we wanted to do. Right. Um, so to give, like, a super brief overview, because, like, also, I have to say, like, I came in as a fan around the So Wrong That's Right era. Like, okay. I... Same. Yeah. To, so to, like, give my, like, super brief history of, like, what got me into All Time Low, mm-hmm. um, my best friend, Allie, so who I credit with many like pretty much getting me into scene music so i have to give her a shout out but she uh burned me a mix cd which is how you got music to each yep. other back in the day yeah um it had to have been like 2006 maybe early 2007 and it had running from lions acoustic by all time nice. low on it which is a like an quote-unquote album track off of put up or shut up and it was acoustic which to this day i will like live and die by the fact that, that was an acoustic recording, but I have never seen any like studio release of that song acoustically, so I don't understand it. Okay. Um, but the funny thing is that I don't, I don't really like acoustic or like slow songs, like any of that. Like I like, <laughs> I like it's on my life that I don't normally like ballads or anything like that. Uh-huh. So the fact that I liked it, I was like, wow, this means I really like this band. And uh-huh. so I went back to her. And she burnt me all of Put Up or Shut Up on a CD, which is like a rare thing. Like you didn't burn full CDs for someone. Like you gave them a mix. And that had the regular Running From Lions on it, which I didn't realize until like years later was like the way it's like supposed to be released. So anyway, 
Running from Lions is my favorite all-time low song for that reason. Nice. Um, but so that was really how I got into them. But then when I went to go see them on Warp Tour, which I believe, I believe my first Warp Tour was in twenty, or no, sorry, two thousand eight. And I think what had happened was because I went to the Milwaukee date. And for some reason, they didn't play the Milwaukee date. I think I looked it up once, and that was when they were, like, going to the MTV red carpet or something like that. Or they dropped off the tour. There was some crazy reason that they couldn't be there that was not expected. And I remember being heartbroken. Like, oh, I, like no. that was the band I could see. And I was devastated that I couldn't see them in 2008. And then I went back the next year in 2009, which is when they released Nothing Personal. And they had already exploded. So, like, by the first time I saw All Time Low, they had, like, really already hit the mainstream. But I had been listening to them since, I think, pre-So Wrong It's Right or about when So Wrong It's Right came out. So, that's my super brief history. But, so to come in for, like, where they were as a band. uh, So, the first two things they released before they signed Hopeless Records were Three Words to Remember and Dealing with the End, which was an EP. Uh, It had four songs on it. I don't think those have ever been like re-recorded or re-released. Like mm-hmm. this is stuff they like to talk about. Um, it was like very early high school demos, uh, and then their first full technically was uh, the party scene, which is first real release. Uh, so that had eleven songs on it, and many of those were eventually re-recorded for the Put Up or Shut Up EP, which was the first release on Hopeless. Mm-hmm. Um, but the party scene thousand were ever made. So I know a couple fans who have them. I know a lot of uh, upper management Hopeless has them. It's like kind of like my pie in the sky like fan thing I would love to one day have. And a lot of those like early recordings uh, again got re-recorded for that Put Up or Shut Up EP. Um, and then a couple others that like kind of uh sustain so like the the biggest example is circles which is kind of a running joke within the group of fans where they shot this uh pretty tragic looking music video again <laughs> you can find this on youtube that was just like hilarious in the sense that like it looks so dated it was like pre-skinny jeans they're wearing like boot cut jeans but they're wearing girls t-shirts uh-huh. and like the haircuts are just so profound 2006 it's really cute because you can see like even then they had like some camaraderie as a band and like you could see they were like so excited about like here we are shooting a music video like it it's really cute i would recommend everyone go see it um and then there were a couple because i got like you know a ripped copy on uh either through a friend or online wire or something so i also really liked hometown heroes national uh, nobodies which was like another like kind of grittier they, they they really loved the like heavy drums and like kind of yelly vocals and like hadn't really like leaned into the pop of pop punk yet so it's kind of a fun listen just like again like this was 2005 so like it was all, like that whole album and that whole era is it, you can almost hear like the it's not post hardcore but it's almost post hardcore like it's got that like youthful angst of like early 2000s alt rock bands yeah. So uh, this party scene album was really what got the attention of Hopeless. Uh, they ended up signing them, like I said, like around, I, I don't remember for sure if it was like before they graduated or right after, but like very close to them graduating high school. Um, and they took a lot of those songs off of party scene and put them on put up or shut up. So like running from lions, as I mentioned, breakout, breakout, um, the party scene song, lullabies the girl's straight up hustler all of those made it over to put up or shut up which was like one of those weird overgrown eps that i'm like can something be an ep if it's seven songs like (laughs) Um, right where's the line 
Yeah, because I think Mayday Parade and the main were like those bands that like they were the ones following Warp Tour and they were the ones like with this EP like trying to sell it on the road and like really just make it from the ground up. And like, I mean, obviously the hope was to get signed to a record label, but they weren't just, you know, playing in their hometown waiting for that to happen. Uh, and I think like a lot of times an album is defined by its worst parts and, you know, for pop and, you know, some other like hip hop R&B, like you want that huge song that's going to catapult you into the next, you know, top 40 charts, whatever. But in the scene, you want a really committed fan base and you do that by releasing a good collection of songs. So I think a lot of times instead of like having one huge hit and then releasing a bunch of other songs that no one really gives a shit about, instead they were like, let's release like five spectacular songs on one EP. We can sell it for cheaper. Fans can, you know, get really attached to these five songs and like, let's go from there instead of like trying to be one hit wonders in that sense. Totally. And it's super interesting that like the scene didn't really have, I had this conversation with a couple people earlier this year about how the scene didn't really have one hit wonders because of how the fan base operates. Like if you were a fan of a scene band, you loved everything that they did and it didn't really matter what the big song was because the way that those fans operated is kind of like how like standums operate now. And it's super funny to be able to trace that back to kind of like Warp Tour and Emo because when you look at K-pop fans, it doesn't matter what BTS releases. It doesn't matter what Monster X releases or any type of K-pop group. If you stand them, you love it all. It doesn't matter. Like you are their their army, the rallying cry, everything around them. As soon as they (laughs) drop a new music or a song, it's like a siren goes off and they're like, all right, time to support. Let's stream. Let's how do we mobilize to get this to the top of every chart possible? And it's it's so interesting to kind of be able to trace that back to emo. Totally. Yeah. And I think, too, that like having bands that are flexible enough and eager enough to like really let fans kind of choose what songs they hold on to like and i have to give all time low shouts there too because like a lot of times they'll once they release a full album the fans will be like no this is the song like this is the one that we love like this Mm. is the one that we're gonna rally behind and they've always been like yeah sure we'll play it at shows like yeah sure we'll like release later music videos for it like they have no problem with that they're like they're just eager that fans are still loving the stuff they put out whether it's the first single or an album track Definitely. And I think there's a lot of credit we could give to All Time Low in many different areas. And I know we're going to get to it at one point of the episode, but um, I think it's super uh, interesting and and you got to give props to how they've never had a member change. And I think it's good to throw it in here at the beginning because they're still these same four kids that started all this shit like 15, 16, 17 years ago now. I totally agree. I bring that up a lot that like it is so, so rare in general just to see a band like have as long of a career as they have with no member changes, but also like just truly from when they were teenagers, like they really stick together and they really support each other. And you can tell that they just have like such a good flow as a band and they really understand how each other works. And I think like that's like that's really what's led to a lot of their success because you have fans that are like Zach and Ryan fans just as much as they are like Alex and Jack fans. And like they're also like let's mention this at the top too. Like they're one of the first bands that like really uh, highlighted their crew and like really like Ah. let fans 
in on like their sound guy and like their lighting guy, like their guitar and drum techs, like their TM, like everybody, they like wanted those people to like be highlighted. And a lot of it like, wasn't necessarily like, Oh, let us praise this person that's doing our, but like, it was like, you could see them all dicking around backstage and you could see that they like were bringing people that like they loved and they trusted out with them. And I think like, I know that was one of my first introductions to like, band roles that weren't necessarily being in a band like I didn't know how touring worked when I was a teenager but I saw the way that they treated their crew and I was like oh like one of my first like I wanted to go on tour like I I had no musical talent whatsoever (laughs) so I knew that I was gonna do you know I would have to do something kind of technical and first introduction I had to that so I think that you know really celebrated for them too because they they really have been family since the beginning definitely that's 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 another great point that i don't think uh a lot of people recognize or realize because you didn't really have that until the neon era Uh, i think earlier before that i think it was just maybe just a product of the internet and how it wasn't really like like vlogs and shit like that weren't really happening in the first era uh of emo from like 2000 to 2005 or so um, but you kind of started getting that with the fallout boys and the all time lows and you were getting introduced to other crew members through those kind of like tour blog videos that they would do. And that's, uh, that's super interesting and definitely okay. a lost art because you don't have tour blogs anymore from bands. <laughs> that's for fucking sure. But okay. So moving on from put up or shut up into so wrong. It's right. They're fully a hopeless records band. That album actually which this is super super impressive just in of itself this is how much hype put up or shut up put on all-time low you usually don't see with like the first official full-length i know it's not their actually first official full-length album but for many people this was the first full-length album from all-time low so wrong it's right did fourteen thousand two hundred copies first week which is pretty wild because like you didn't see that like like when under oath released they're only chasing safety i can't even find first week numbers for that because it was so low and they already had like (laughs) albums out before that you know um but like when uh from first to last released their first full-length album dear diary you can't even find first week numbers for it because half the time those albums didn't even debut on the top 200 but that's how much hype and momentum that the put up or shut up ep really like pushed this band forward that people were actually in anticipating this first real like palpable label release from the band and uh at this point in time current day it's certified gold dear maria's certified platinum this album put this band everywhere and it had multiple fucking songs i have i have an entire like two months of summer just where that every time i listen to pop and champagne it puts me right back into that that bonfire that backyard that fucking cornfield (laughs) it puts me right there like i have so many memories to so many small parts of this band that it's crazy and it was so wild to see what this one album did for them like and i think a lot of this too is like they got in at the perfect time for Warp Tour, where, like, they did Warp Tour 2007. They had all the chance to, like, build up this hype and get a following on MySpace and be selling Put Up or Shut Up. And so people were really ready for it. And then to be able to do that, because it's released in September, um, and to my knowledge, they weren't, like, you know, selling. You couldn't really, like, sell anything early on Warp Tour. So the fact that they did that pretty much on their own without, you know, this is before, like, 
tour bundles or before they were big enough to like do any of those other sort of like first week number goose sorts of things. And like I said, this was in Target. Like if you had heard like in present day where a band's like label debut record would be in Target, like that would be unheard of. Straight up. Like Like, it'd be like if the new Stand Atlantic album was in Target, you know, (laughs) like on on a, on a stand out in the, out in the front of the aisle. (laughs) And like a lot of that, a lot of that is like the time, like into totally. like that was how you sold records back right. then. But like even for that, even for that, it's still impressive. And uh, but they also they did Warp Tour in two thousand eight. Like they were like on it. Like they were just like very like ready to be integrated into the scene. And they were like so they were one of the first bands to like kind of not care about an album cycle. And a lot of that is like due to social media spiking. It was when you could start being connected to fans all the time. They took any tour they could. They were like, and it was, you could see it in the fans. Like they were so excited to be on board with this band. And they were one of those bands that really made you feel like you were in a community from day one. Like you were an all time low fan. Like you were a hustler. You were a hustler. I love it. I I was, I was also a hustler. (laughs) Oh, and and we should also speak to the fact that like the, speaking of hustlers, like they were one of the first bands to uh, have a fan club and totally. to really mobilize these fans. Like when you, and it's also I have to say like I know there's been uh, a lot of scene controversy about like paying for meet and greets and everything else, but to be a hustler, I I have to look it up, but I believe you paid twenty dollars for a year. You got a free T-shirt, which there's your twenty bucks right there, uh-huh. and then you got early access codes that could get you into meet and greets. So it wasn't necessarily like you were saying, like I'm going to pay you some amount of money and I will be able to meet and greet. But you got the advance codes, which almost ensured that you would be able to get a meet and greet. Right. But they were one of the first bands to do that, like for a super like doable price for something that you feel like you got real value. You had, I believe, you had like. Luckily, I stayed off these, but I believe you had like message boards that you could talk to other hustler fans. Like, I know people that created like lifelong friendships on like 2008 hustler fandom message boards. Like, that was awesome as hell. Yeah. And it was so they really like when I say they fostered a community, they like weren't necessarily because again, now you can hear about fans, you know, people charging hundreds of dollars for meet and greet tickets or whatever else, but like. From the beginning, they've been like, here's a yearly fee to like continue to get stuff. And then on that, it's like you're not paying this on top of a ticket price. Uh, really, a lot of credit goes to them and their team for like having that idea of being able to keep people, you know, mobilized via email, via message boards, all these different things. It's really impressive. Definitely. And I, I, I was never a part of literally any fan group. So I wasn't like in the trenches for any of that. But it definitely feels like it made a turn around that time. And I think there's a lot of other things that go into that, like you said, with the internet and, and social media and everything kind of taking off on the electronic side. But it is super interesting how, you know, they were one of the first bands to really utilize that and they were the band like the top band to come out of that neon era and uh you know i think there's definitely some weight to say that if you're given the tools it's whoever utilizes them best and uh that there is definitely a lot more weight to 20 bucks for a free t-shirt and message boards and all that shit and it's not 80 dollars for a polaroid like kellen quinn was trying to do but (laughs) (laughs) okay so 2007 comes around, they drop this, 
They're rolling. It's a hell of a fucking cycle. They have Dear Maria just absolutely take off and quite a few subsequent singles. They have an instant acoustic hit, Remembering Sunday, which seen classic, hands down. Nothing Personal comes out in 2009, two years later, and I think this is in the top five scene follow-ups for any band that's ever been in the scene. To be able to follow up the hype of your first, like, real momentous album and to come in guns blazing with this, with a follow-up that is exactly what your fans want, there are so few examples of this that we have throughout scene history, and Nothing Personal is an absolute banger of a record front to back. It has one bad song. It's called Stella. That song is ass. How Painting Flowers didn't make it onto the album is beyond me. (laughs) Holy shit. You hate Stella? That is your one bad song off of Nothing Personal? It's so bad. That's my favorite song off of Nothing Personal. That's my favorite song off that record. I'm 100% true. Literally everyone out here, I have had this argument so many times in 2020 about how Stella is a terrible song. I I just, I, I can't, how do you people think this way? Like, that is one of the worst neon interpretations of like 80s butt rock I've ever heard. Like besides that one what song off the second God's Boys name? Like Are Girls you... album is just absolute trash. It's so bad. It is so bad. I could not disagree more. And I also <laughs> find it shocking that like to you, like there's so many other songs on this album that I would anticipate that you would hate that seem like way more like, and again, an incredible record, just um, an amazing way to build off of everything they did on So Wrong It's Right without fundamentally changing their song. They, it was really one of the first things you could see where they were refining what they wanted to be rather mm-hmm. than trying to change it dramatically. They were trying to like shape off of what they already had. That being said, the fact that there are so many other songs <laughs> on this record that could be seen as like hokey or like kind of like, you know, just like kind of sickly sweet that like they work in the context of the record, but I find it so funny that Stella is the one of all of them that you're like, oh, this song sucks. Like, that's crazy it to me. Fi- it's the only oh example God. on the whole record that feels like filler. Like, even Lost in the Stereo, Hello Brooklyn, Sick Little Games is a fucking ballad and a half. Like, banger nation straight up. I, it's so good. Too Much, your pop track, let's go. Like, Too Much is better than anything they wrote on Last Young Renegades. Like, you want to write a pop song? Let's go. Too Much much all day long this record is incredible except for stella and the proof is in the fucking numbers because they did sixty-three thousand first week on nothing personal it is now certified gold and weightless one of the best lead singles to an album ever is certified gold as well and this was this is all-time low firing on all cylinders so to break it down, like they had Weightless was an incredible first single choice. The fact that they were releasing it on Warp Tour and they were touring on Warp Tour this entire time with the album releasing, I believe midway through, this was like a July release, I think. Um, so they had it coming out on Warp Tour. They were playing all the singles there. Weightless is quintessentially a Warp Tour song. Like that is a Warp Tour anthem. Like it yep. is just made for it. Um, the fact that they had... This was right when, like, uh, all the technology was really starting for them. So you could have, because this was the first album I think I ever pre-ordered on iTunes. Like, I remember staying up until midnight the night that this released and having it auto-download and being like, "That's so cool!" Like, it was like, (laughs) it was like, 
like, truly, like, it was, like, mind-blowing to me, because this is also dating me, but it was showing that I was at summer camp, and I couldn't go to a record store, but I had my laptop with me, and so it was auto-downloading, and I could listen to it the next day on my iPod. Like, that was one of the first, like, new releases that I could do that with. Um, and again, like, that's, like, at Warp Tour, it was one of the first times that they could say go pre-order our record you can do it online like you don't have to walk into a store the day it releases to get it right and also uh we should note too because we haven't said it yet but this is a band that knows how to do a music video they (laughs) always it's so funny like they so are able to so a lot of the music videos both of so wrong it's right and nothing personal are like those quintessential trl hilarious plot driven goofy music videos that really like added to their personalities and added to like fans being able to joke around about them i believe as it was at this same summer camp hopefully there is no video if there is if you own it please burn it i never want to have to see it again but i did do the pop and champagne dance with a group <laughs> of other in the for the talent show so like they they but again so all off of the music video they were all off of like fans really loving this band (laughs) and um really like having eyes and visuals on them definitely so nothing personal blew this band up even bigger than they were on so wrong it's right and it's weird to kind of look back on the history of it because it almost feels like i know we just came off the nothing personal anniversary shows but it it feels like so wrong it's right is more beloved and is even more nostalgic and is more of like the mainstay all-time low nostalgia record than nothing personal and i i while we're on nothing personal i find it very not odd but i guess kind of disappointing that remembering sunday is the acoustic ballad and not therapy because therapy is definitely the better song see again we disagree i like remembering sunday better i never connected with therapy i know i know but i find it super interesting because i think remembering sunday because again up until remembering sunday like which again was an album track so before then they were just releasing bangers they were really the like mega hit like goofy you know almost like on the verge of like kind of frat bro sort of like upbeat songs and so to release remembering sunday was really personal and really like intimate in terms of like having the sad slow song that fans really connected to they had lullabies on put up or shut up but that didn't really you know take right. off you know, with when you have coffee shops i'm talking jay-z ran it out you know you're not gonna get to lullabies but <laughs> with remembering Sunday, that was something that like people really loved and to be you know have that as a request it shows with like your acoustic bit that was surprising and with therapy everyone forgets that that song was not a single that song still does not have a music video like right. that has never gotten the like single treatment but it's st- like fans are still so attached to that song and to have, like, that's probably, like, I don't have any statistics on this, but that's probably, like, those lyrics are the most, like, tattooed. Those lyrics are the most referenced. <laughs> those lyrics are, like, what everyone had as, like, the headers for their Tumblr blogs back in yep. the day. Like, that was the song in a lot of ways. Totally. So that kind of goes back to about, like, them letting fans just, like, own certain songs. And I think it's interesting, like, as an album closer, like, we've seen, too, that a, you know, a lot of... They'll, they'll have those, like, certain slow songs on every record that fans, like, connect with over and over again. And I find that, like, kind of dichotomy so interesting in a band that's known for, like, upbeat, happy clappy, like, we just want to have a good time to also have at least, like, one super personal 
super like slow sad acoustic ballad on Def- every record definitely and you know at the time remembering sunday i think i think it was just uh, a relatability level remembering sunday felt like a fallout boy song and i'm like what the fuck is this song about like <laughs> it's it goes it, is. <laughs> it goes like back and forth so many times and i'm like you know it's good but like it's not necessarily making me like like the first verse makes me feel some way and i'm like wait he's not talking about that at all but when it came to therapy that like it was like holy shit i am you know whatever 14 15 years old I want to go in my room and just cry at this point. <laughs> they were they were a band that like in a time of emo that like where people were making exclusively music for you to lay in your bed and cry to. Yeah. All time low. First of all, you know they were the original like they had the range meme of being able to be all of these different things. Damn. But they yep. also they were one of the first bands along with kind of like the Cobra Starships and the Forever the Sickest Kids and like the Neon Era to be like, hey, it's cool to be sad, but we're gonna make music for you to forget that you're sad too. Mm. But also release something that like you can also attach to in that way. Definitely. Yeah. Therapy was definitely for that. And I've, I talked about it a couple times earlier this year with some friends and how underrated it is in scene history. And and like you said, it was never pushed as a single. It was never given a music video. And I, uh, I, I definitely really appreciate that song and will fight for it in any conversation, but okay. So, so nothing personal catapults this band. It's, it creates such a buzz around them they get updrafted to Interscope and release their major label debut, Dirty Work. And I have to I have to go on a super itty bitty quick tangent before we get to Dirty Work. Okay. I go also for it. have to say, while we're talking about like this band and how they've like gotten such a like diehard fandom for them, I think straight to DVD, which was the DVD they released between Nothing Personal and Dirty Work. Yes. I think that also that just it it cements everything else we've been talking about. Like they had by this social media is starting to kind of become a thing. You could get tweets sent to your phone, but straight to DVD was like another opportunity for you to like. They had so much footage that wasn't just them on stage performing. There's so many fan inside jokes or like iconic moments that came from them just like goofing around backstage. Um, and I think you know all before now like tour dvds were just like oh i didn't get to go see the tour so i'm gonna put in the dvd and watch them perform but streaking dvd was so much more than that and it was another opportunity for these fans to like because i know a lot of people too that like got into all-time low after nothing personal released and they watched straight to dvd over and over again because they couldn't go see them on tour yet totally minor tangent to say that like that also like has its own place in all-time low history on top of everything else. Totally. And, and, I mean, real quick, since you brought it up, I I completely omitted it from their history, and it might be because I let a girl borrow it in high school and I never got it back, but... um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's certified gold. Like, they released a DVD album, and it's certified gold. It got the certification in 2016, which is just absolutely ridiculous. 500,000 pure copies. That's fucking awesome. Again, I date myself. I I made a drinking game to this, and I was it like I got to college the following year. Sorry, mom. I got to college, and I would literally. Pop, I had a couple friends who liked seeing music in college, and we would pop this DVD in and do the drinking game before we would go out to parties. Like it was, it was just a, like a, such a great, uplifting, fun DVD to just like watch and joke around with and have on. 
it was. It was just so well made. It was totally, and I and I miss the 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 band DVDs. I miss them so much. Whether it be on a deluxe oh, reissue of an album or the deluxe edition of when the album first came out, I miss them so much. Uh, I have watched the Under Oath deluxe DVDs thousands of times at this point. <laughs> I could. I was gonna say like Fall Out Boy. I think release the bats. Is that what it was? Oh yeah, I, I forgot about that one. With those stupid, crazy little skits they filmed at like Pete's parents' houses, like it's just. Yep. It's so funny. It was a different time. It completely. was a different time in that, but that look, it, it, it almost feels like that look is more personal than what we get on social media nowadays, which is a whole nother episode to unpack. But I mean, they were really letting you into their lives at that point. And it was, it was this access that you didn't get anywhere else, but super interesting. I guess we're going to have to do an entire episode on deluxe edition DVDs from the scene. I guess. Oopsie doopsie. (laughs) I suppose. Let's do it. Okay. So nothing personal blows them up straight to DVD, classic footnote, dirty work, Interscope, major label debut. Where do we even start with this train wreck Z? I have PTSD from this whole thing. (laughs) So, okay. I have a couple thoughts. Go for it. So I want to start by saying that I am one of the biggest dirty work apologists. I think there's a lot of good on this record that got overlooked by a couple of like key missteps uh-huh. from early in this release. So my so, first my first question before you dive into it, were you an apologist right off the bat? Oh, absolutely not. I have to like I'll sell myself out immediately. I was not an apologist. Okay. Because, and this is what I think is super interesting, as someone who has, like, now worked at a label and has, like, seen the strategy behind, you know, people trying to choose singles and, you know, how they want to roll something out to an established fan base, I understand the logic of trying to release, like, having your first single be something super different Uh so that fans know off the bat, like, this is, like, setting in the tone for the record, you know, like, having something really new and really different. Mm -hmm. I think that is fine. I think... What they did with I Feel Like Dancing is wrong. <laughs> I, I can picture, I can just picture in my head this Interscope marketing executive A&R meeting of everyone being like, this is the song, bro. Like, this has got to be it. Like, this is going to be the thing. And the band themselves have cited that they weren't, like, they wrote that song, like, to be kind of, like, not not a joke song, but to be like very tongue in cheek, very much like in on the joke. And I think fans weren't ready for that. And I don't think that's the tone you want to release for your first song. Right. Like if you were like genuinely going in a new direction and you were going all the way pop, sure. But to release like there's just too much nuance there. There's too much like we're joking, but we're not. But this is a new record, but it's going to be different. But here's the first song. Like people weren't ready for that. Nope. Um, and I think that a lot of missteps can happen when you release that when the first single when you're going to an established fan base isn't chosen with them in mind like it's one thing if it's going to be your song your sound but one step to the left but for something like this people people hated it like it was it was pretty crazy to watch in real time like I remember that coming out and everyone being like what the fuck is happening? Like, truly, like, being floored. Totally. I'll never forget the day that came out. I was at, uh, I was at band practice at my buddy's house, and, uh, we were, I mean, we were literally basically an all-time low rip-off band at that point, 
And <laughs> I feel like dancing came out and I'll never forget because it was really kind of the first introductions that I had as a music fan of a songwriter having a hand in a, in a song that wasn't by their band introduced mm-hmm. into like the public conversation. Um, I don't know why, but instantly Rivers Cuomo was just associated with this song because I think people wanted to blame someone then all time low. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I hadn't that. had that like type of immersion into a, uh, you know, into a backlash scene as a music fan yet. And it was really interesting to see once other songs started coming out and once the album came out, they were like songs like Guts and uh, I mean, my favorite song off the album, Heroes. It's like, okay, they're still a pop punk band. Like, what the fuck was that? Um, No, so that's what I'm saying. I think there's so much other good stuff on this record. You named a lot of the ones that are my favorite. So Guts and Heroes are songs that they still play live they still love that I think are quintessentially them. I think just the way I'm not and do you want me dead are like those slightly more pop leaning songs. Yeah. That like had they released those as a lead single, I think fans would have been like, Oh, okay. So like this is major label all time love and right. would have been fine with it. Right. So I, I think there's still a lot of stuff there. And I think in hindsight, like, especially this is going to be a theme of all time low too. I think they can really redeem a lot of their old catalog by playing it live. Like, I don't think I would have connected with Guts or Heroes until I heard it live. And I remember the experience of hearing it live for the first time of like being like, oh, this, this was off Dirty Work. I didn't like this song. Oh, but this song is good. Oh, I think I'm going to dance. Like, it's just like, it, it was a very, like, you had to see it live to have that kind of transformation. But yeah, for a lot of people, it's still like, they heard that first song and they were out. And I like, it's, it's not the normal thing that you talk about with fandoms. Like normally with like Stan culture, it's like, no matter what you release, they'll be on board. But with this, they weren't like, they just, they weren't ready for that. Right. And I think, I wonder since Stan culture and especially, you know, you talk about like K-pop fans and how young they are. I wonder how much they are going to grow with these acts and artists that they stand now and are their entire lives. Because I think a lot of it was just that the fans grew out of all time low in a way. Um, obviously they, they had a bit of a renaissance as we'll talk about in a little bit. And they maintained some of that. And they even got newer, younger fans, uh, that were, uh, didn't get to experience, you know, the so wrong it right, put up or shut up era. But I, I'm really interested to see if K-pop and standums as, as a whole have the same kind of effect that emo did as those fans grew up and got married and buy bought houses and had dogs and you had to pay a mortgage and had to get jobs and had to grow out of that very innocent time period of you know the only thing that mattered was if your hair looked like pete wentz's and and if you you know had enough eyeliner to make it through the rest of the week but everyone has to grow up at some point and it's really interesting to see how i feel like this all-time low record was a bit twofold in the fact that, you know, it had been at this point almost five years of being like fantastic all-time low, like being an all-time low was the, being an all-time low fan was the best thing at this point. And then you were also growing up, some of those kids were already out of high school, 
a lot of things in their lives were changing it. And then they released an album that was like, all right, I, there's no reason for me to give a fuck anymore. You know, like, I think it was kind of twofold at that period for those kind of fans that were around from the beginning. I'd agree with you. I think, I think it's a lot of it's that I, a lot of times I'll reference all time low is like the older sister band. There's so many fans I know that like, got into, you know, all time lower, the first band that they really loved on their own. And they have younger siblings or, you know, younger cousins or someone like that. And they, there's so many great stories I hear of now of fans who are fans like my age and now have like a little cousin who's like 14 and they're taking them to their first all time low show. Yep. So I think a lot of ways it's one of those bands that unlike like, uh, like a Panic at the Disco, who I think had a completely day one renaissance in a yes. lot of ways got fans that from the brand new start on the ground floor yes. after the most like the last record of the record before. I think All Time Low kind of had that like generational sounds very strange, but I think that is what it was like passing down of like, oh, this is the band that got me into this kind of music. Um, so I think it's a it's a part of it that and I would also say too. People have been calling all-time low sellouts since So Wrong It's Right. Like, remember in 2007, <laughs> like, sellout was, like, the number one thing to say. Like, you were like, oh, there's sellouts. Like, Fall Out Boy were sellouts, like, when Quirk Tree came out. Like, all-time low were sellouts when So Wrong It's Right came out. Like, totally. I remember getting into them and people being like, well, they haven't been good since Put Up or Shut Up. Like, it's crazy. Totally. So, That's so funny. So I have- remember saying the exact same thing about Amberlin when they re-released the Feel Good Dragon. It got a shit ton of radio play. I'm like, those fucking sellouts. <laughs> yeah, it was still- and like, and I, like that's one of the like. I'm so grateful that that term has more or less died in the present day because now people same. like they want their favorite bands to be successful. I exactly. think that's like the perfect outlook, and I think that's one of the best things from like this new generation of music fans that you don't see people saying that Billie Eilish is a sellout. You're like. She won like four fucking Grammys. Like, yeah, she's she's the real deal. Like, you see fans like that. Exactly. Um, but with all time low at this point in time, like, they had had so wrong. It's right with pe- which people thought was them selling out, which already hysterical to look at and be like, this is the record. You think this is them selling out? Okay. Then you had nothing personal, and people doubled down on it, even though they were still growing. So I think by the time Dirty Work came out, people were like, oh, this is it. Like, this is the nail in the coffin. Because that was the, like, narrative that I saw, is that, especially with them signing to a major label, especially with, like, because we also have to, like, as we go through Dirty Work, we have to say, this is a band that is so tied in their brand to Hopeless Records. Like, one again, just like they were one of the first bands to really show off their crew, they were one of the first bands to really show a partnership with their label especially in a time Mm. that like people were eager to paint labels as evil and how dare they and they did this having all-time low release two super successful records on hopeless and then have a less than great experience with a major label i think really cemented the like branding of the two of them together because people were literally like tweeting at hopeless records being like please rescue all-time low from interscope like what that's so (laughs) funny which, like, even today, you wouldn't really hear of. Like, there's very few bands, I think, that are, like, you know, apart from, like, the culture that's around Fueled by Ramen, I think there's very few bands that are so tied to who their label is. Yeah, and that's so interesting, too. I, I had an episode idea to do about how uh, label loyalty has died. And in your case, which is super interesting, the point that you brought up, it's a good thing. And my angle was that I miss it. 
because <laughs> uh, like I was a tooth and nail and solid state record stand growing up and it didn't matter what band they signed I would buy that album you know it, it, it I literally had never heard of them before didn't know what they sounded like I didn't have internet access growing up because I had dial-up internet but when I would see an AP that they had signed a new band or they had a new album coming out, I would literally like mark down the day and that weekend or whenever my mom went to the fucking family Christian bookstore next, I would go out and I would (laughs) buy that record from that band that I had no idea what they sounded like or who they were or anything. It didn't matter, you know, like I was just so loyal and I was so dedicated to that label as a whole and to what they were doing that I was going to buy everything that they did. And, you know, like... My girlfriend's, that was fueled by ramen for her. And I know so many other people who were just fueled by ramen, as they call it, fueled by ramen trash, (laughs) where they would buy everything that was fueled by ramen. And it's super interesting to see how that definitely had a downturn and is now kind of save for, like you said, almost still just fueled by ramen kind of died like you don't have people who are like i am only like i love hopeless records i am only gonna buy from them and that's not a jab at hopeless records it's just a, a, a the state of the scene as a whole you know like i went through my rise records phase where it was if they signed a band i was in it didn't matter what you know what level they were at if they i remember the day they signed hands like houses i was like this is the future of post hardcore <laughs> everything is gonna wow. change you know like they had the song they draw i think their first single was lion skin with johnny craig and i remember they dropped that back when the rise records youtube page was just popping off like insanely you they dropped a brand new signing and it instantly shot up to like 200,000 300,000 500,000 views within the first day and uh it, it was such a foundation to just launch bands because everyone was waiting for what rise records was gonna do and i remember when the fucking rise records logo was cool like i had a rise records hoodie <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that's crazy! But it is but it's interesting. True. It's like it, it like yeah. it create again. It's like all about community, and it's right. being able to have those fans who are on your side, and also show off that like label relationships could be really positive. Like I, I think it was a shame in the like late two thousands that some bands had really awful experiences. So it was good to also see, you know, bands who have waited their whole lives to be signed and also see them have like a great experience. That's another episode that we would definitely, definitely do label loyalty and how it died. And maybe it's not for the worst, uh, like I thought it was, but that's super interesting. Okay. As, uh, you said, a lot of people asked and they did receive that hopeless records saved all time low from Interscope. And All Time Low went right back and released two kind of back-to-back albums. The first one was Don't Panic and Future Hearts. And this is where we get into the second half of All Time Low's career where you can kind of fold it in half. You know, you had in the first half, So Wrong It's Right, Nothing Personal, major label release. Second half, you have Don't Panic, Future Hearts, both again on Hopeless Records, major label release. And Don't Panic in Future Hearts, somehow, I don't, I don't think there's another example of a scene band like this, they managed to duplicate the hype. And by the time Future Hearts came around, they were the biggest they've ever been. So at this point, for me personally, I was checked out. 
I was done after Dirty Work. All I listened to was Terror, and I didn't give a shit about <laughs> any scene bands. I was a piece of shit hardcore kid, and the only thing I cared about was Expire and fucking Backtrack, and those were the only bands I listened to at this point. So I completely missed Don't Panic. By the time Future Arts came out, I was back at AP and I was like, okay, you know, I don't have to listen to Terror to to, to be cool, you know, because hardcore <laughs> is literally high school all over again. Um, I'm so and- grateful you came to that conclusion. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad that you were saved from Terror. <laughs> right. And it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I came back into Future Hearts. Um, so I completely missed Don't Panic. I list, I remember when they released, uh, what is it? A Love Like War with Vic Fuentes from Pierce the Veil. And I remember that wow. being a kind of big moment. Um, and I think I remember them releasing Reckless and the Brave. I don't even know if that's on Don't Panic or if either of those songs are on Don't Panic. So break down the Don't Panic era for me, Mackenzie, because I know you were around for this, right? I I was like living and dying Don't Panic. Okay. Like it was such a moment. And I think again it was one of those examples of all the right things being done and all the right things happening at the right time. And I think all time low, especially cuz you could see from the quick turnaround from Dirty Work to Don't Panic, you could see that they knew they were off course and yeah. knew that they kind of wanted to course correct and to get back to where they were. Um, Cause it would have been really easy for them to be like, fuck you fans. Like we don't care that you don't like these songs, like whatever, you know, and try to pivot and just be a radio band. But instead they were like, no, I think like the fans kind of sometimes know them better than they know themselves. And they wanted to go back to that. So they immediately course corrected, went back to hopeless records. I remember the day that they teased and then announced they were back on Hopeless, that they were releasing the new song. I remember, like, I, I vividly remember it was one of the first times that, like, someone teased something and everyone was like, we fucking know what's happening. Oh, like, my God. Like, both All Time Low and Hopeless Records had both tweeted, like, something big happening tomorrow. And everyone was like, duh. <laughs> like, like, duh. We know what it is. Like, of course. And I think, like, Reckless and the Brave righted a lot of the wrongs of the first single where they were like, we're going to release a song about narrative. Like we're going to release a song that's like going back to the fans. It's like, Hey, thank you for being here. I believe on the same day, they also announced they were going to be on warp tour that summer or were on warp tour or something. And again, like a band going back to warp tour. If you heard of like a band getting signed to a major label and then saying we're the following summer that they're going to go back on warp tour, you would be like, Oh, that like, that band's dead but like instead they were like we know that that's how to get back to the fans and just show them that we're for real and like they were a big band like they didn't have to go back and be sweaty and uncomfortable and like sitting in lines to get food at warp tour anymore but they did and i think it's really a credit to them that like i remember being in that crowd in 2012 and being like my favorite band is back this is it like they're here that's awesome so i again like they like they really did everything right i think Hopeless Records also like did just the right thing in supporting them and being like, hey, come back in with open arms. Like, we're gonna like make a record that your fans are gonna love and be proud of. Um, that being said, Don't Panic is actually one of my least favorite all time low records. Oh, I don't actually. Here we go. I love it. Okay. I know. I, I, again, I think there's some songs that like stand the test of time. So like, I really like Outlines. I really like if these sheets were states. Um, the rest are just okay for me. I think they're still solid. And I think they do all show off that they wanted to get back to pop punk. I think there's some stuff that's like 
super old school on there. I think a lot of songs that like I wouldn't have picked to be fan favorites, but again, the fans just, you know, own what they're going to own. Somewhere in Neverland and Backseat Serenade are huge at shows. I remember watching like a hundred crowd surfers go over my head for somewhere in Neverland and being like, this is it. This is the one. <laughs> like this, this is, is the, the one. Yeah. Oh, and so long and thanks for all the booze. I love that song. I still listen to that song a lot. So that's probably my favorite off of this record to unpack. Like dirty work was 43,000 first week, which is, which was a 20,000 drop from nothing personal. 63,000 don't panic did 48. All they had to do was go back to hopeless and they were selling more again. <laughs> <laughs> Which is hilarious Um, and the opposite of anything that's supposed to happen. But they managed to, like you said, write songs that rallied their fan base, made the moves that their fans wanted to see, and they were able to get back so much of what they lost. But I feel like this was also the beginning of them almost ushering in a new fan base and a new kind of generation for them as a band. Um, cause I feel like there were a lot of fans that came in around this don't panic and especially future hearts that weren't around for so wrong. It's right. So yeah. So moving on to future hearts, there's so much to unpack with this album, but I don't want to stay on it too much cause I want to get through <laughs> the shit show that was last young renegades and then really kind of dive into the current era. So future hearts came out of the fucking gate swinging, did 80,000 first week, 75,000 was traditional units. This was between Don't Panic and Future Hearts was when Billboard switched the chart kind of like recognition and they started including streaming. So to give you context on what scene bands were still doing at that time, streaming only bumped them up 5,000. But what I do want to unpack the most about this is a huge part of All Time Low's second renaissance is can be credited to Five Seconds of Summer. So <laughs> at this point, when Future Hearts came out, it was 2015. I That summer, I was, uh, I was at AP, and uh, Matt was my editor. I believe this was before you came, right, Mackenzie? Uh, summer of 2015, I would have been interviewing. I was interviewing pretty much that whole summer. Got you. Okay, got you. And then you. I didn't come in until September. Okay. So this was just a super, super interesting time because the, at the tail end of the last summer, we had this band called Five Seconds of Summer have a song that really took off and they were playing guitars and they were playing drums and and no one wanted to admit that they were a pop punk band, but they were a pop punk band. And they had just this huge, massive Hot 100 hit and it was fucking everywhere and you couldn't leave your home and not hear this song, even out in the fucking sticks where I lived. And it was super interesting to see that happen. And then they also admit that they loved all the bands that the scene loved. Um, you know, they loved My Chemical Romance, they loved Fall Out Boy, and they loved All Time Low. And throughout this whole cycle of All Time Low coming back, Five Seconds of Summer was the ultimate co-signer of pushing it as many times as they could. Do you? I don't really remember a lot of all of this because I was not a big Future Hearts fan, but do you remember any specific moments of Five Sauce that really stuck out during this cycle that was like, this was the big push that really helped? Everyone's forgetting that one of Five Seconds of Summer's like earliest releases was a cover of Jay-Z Ray. 
Like, Damn. not okay. just an all-time low song, Jay-Z Ray. <laughs> like, I didn't even know that. When was low. that? It was on their Unplugged EP. Okay. So they had, like, a bunch of acoustic things. So they had, a, again, this is going back into, like, the early history of Five Seconds of Summer. But this is when they were coming up in 2012. I never they, knew that. Yeah, So they ha- but they had Jay-Z Ray, like, released. And I'll talk to Five Sauce people now who didn't know that that was a cover of that's so funny yeah so you also might want to look if you want to look up like truly infant five seconds of summer in 2012 they covered jay-z ray like acoustically which is a hilarious video it's on youtube um but so they were like they were really early fans and also you're keep in mind that five seconds of summer are like falling in with like good charlotte and there's a good charlotte feature on future hearts right there's a lot of just like interconnectivity of the scene at that point Because you were living this weird, like, dual life. And that was where, like, Five Seconds of Summer were put on the cover of Alt Press. And all the Alt Press people hated it. But the Five Sauce fans (laughs) loved it. And Five Sauce kind of wanted to be a pop punk band. Because keep in mind, like, 2014, 2015, All Time Low and Five Seconds of Summer are both doing albums with Feldman. Like, they're both writing together. Maybe not, like, writing songs for each other. I believe Alex wrote a few five seconds of summer songs that were off of that self-titled with Feldman. Okay. Uh, none of their like huge breakout hits. I mean, she looks so perfect is just, <laughs> that's, that's that song. That's the um, song. Just make me yeah. end up here long way home. Like those were still like very solid album tracks off of that debut record. Uh-huh. Um, so he was definitely involved. It wasn't as if, you know, apart from a tweet at each other here and there, it wasn't like five seconds of summer where like, taking them on tour or being right. like, this is our favorite band. But there was like a, a lot of fans like from five seconds of summer use that as like their crash course. Like I know people who like loved five sauce, like they got into five sauce off of one direction. So they were like, you know, 12 when they started listening to it. And that was really what got them into scene music. That first self-titled record is a pop punk record. Straight whether, up. You know, five sauce wants to admit it, whether alt press wants to admit it, like that's what that is. <laughs> Definitely. I think that was amazing for the scene. Like, even if they weren't necessarily using those words, there were people that gravitated to Five Sauce because of that sound, whether they stayed a fan or fell away, that went and researched and found other things, whether it be the Good Charlotte cosign and they got into Good Charlotte, whether it be, you know, tweeting at each other and they find All Time Low. Like, they're, they sunk into different places, you know? Definitely. And that's super interesting. I feel like that's one of the first cases where we had definitely not the first, but one of the first where you had a mainstream artist that wasn't part of the scene that was like, I love that world so much. Like we see it all the time in hip hop now. I mean, you know, I was gonna say now you have before like Deuce World, Halsey, Post Malone, like you have so many of those. So many of them. And there's it seems like every other week there's a story or a new video that pops up. I mean, I just saw I dug up one that I I don't even remember where I found it, but a couple of weeks ago it's a Juice World singing a part of me by Neck Deep, which is like you had to be a ground level oh, to know. know that Neck Deep song. <laughs> yeah. And he he was singing the chorus of it, and uh, you know, rest in peace to Juice World, Lil Peep, XXX Tentacion, but all those kids grew up loving scene and emo music from from you know all the way from the spectrum of the heavier shit to you know Lil Uzi Vert loves Lorna Shore, and it it it's just all over the place, and it, it's it's crazy to look back and kind of see that I think it was like. 
uh, a member of One Direction. I wrote some story for it at AP, but he was wearing like Vans, but it had the Devil and God are Raging Inside Me artwork on them. So that I would just be Louis like, Tomlinson. Okay, right. So you know, so uh, <laughs> that's Louis Tomlinson. I remember because I was tracking all that shit. That's hilarious. Um, but it feels like those yeah. were like the ground level stories of mainstream artists that were like, I love emo music. I love scene music, even though I'm not a part of it. I'm just a fan and I really love that it exists. And I think that's super, super cool. Absolutely. And also, fun fact, Louie, the same one that wore the brand new shoes, was also the one that originally tweeted about Five Seconds of Summer that blew them up when they were just like a tiny band doing covers and then eventually took them on tour. Interesting. So, Interesting. Okay. A little bit of One Direction trivia for you. Hey, we love 1D trivia on Note to Scene, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm still waiting for that reunion. Like, let's fucking go at this point. Come on. <laughs> when that happens, I, I will demand to come back on the <laughs> We'll do the run One Direction I with the scene episode. Day. I don't give a shit. Let's go. Um, okay, so Future Hearts recatapults this band a variety of reasons, but somehow they managed to have their biggest first week of their career, arguably the biggest they've ever been at this point, which is insane to think about and kind of contextualize in this time. So they don't really go away at the end of the cycle, but they definitely go quiet. And there was a lot of rumors circulating around, you know, the the backside of the industry of where's all time low going to go? Are they going to stay with Hopeless? They they definitely can go somewhere else at this point. Like eighty thousand first week is a big statement for a for a, a rock band in uh, in twenty fifteen. And so we, I started hearing it about like. It was like a year or so before different whispers of where they where they were going to go, but they ended up at Fuel by Ramen, and I was like, let's go. You know, I don't know if this band deserves a second chance. I don't know if any scene band deserves a second chance, but they have it, and I just, I really hope that they take it and run with it, and they're able to evolve, because I knew that they weren't going to be able to just write Future Hearts Part 2. Um, and they were, we were in for another sound change. And when I heard that they were going into the studio with, uh, Blake Carnage, X vs. Emerge, helped write, uh, a lot of, uh, or helped produce and, and had a hand in White Noise by Paris. I was like, thank God, let's go dark pop, let's fade the band into the background, let's make Alex a scene, like a superstar. I didn't know if it could be done, but I was ready for it. And then the Dirty Laundry video comes out, lead single, and it is just him in the video at the beginning. And I'm like, holy shit, like, we, this is what we're doing. And it's got a very low tone, dark vibe. And I was all for it. And then the rest of the song comes in and the hook doesn't deliver. And they bring the whole band back. And I was so disappointed with this album. I don't know if there's an album that I'm more disappointed with over the last five or so years from the scene than Last Young Renegades. But, um... It's definitely not as bad as like the last, you know, the second to last Sleeping With Sirens album or the last used album or any of those records because the songs still are cohesive. But the disappointment level of what this band had and the gift that they were given of a second chance and how much they just threw this shit straight in the fucking gutter. And how do you blow two major label shots? I don't I don't understand it, it it was so disappointing to see that they were actually trying to make pop songs and 
it just didn't work for whatever reason. I don't know if there were too many cooks in the kitchen or what, but Too Much off of Nothing Personal is a better pop song than anything they have on this record. And I, I've said it on this show again so many times, but fuck Last Young Renegade. God, I hate this record. <laughs> uh, once again, you and I have differing views, so... <laughs> Here's my take with Last Young Renegade. I think, like like we said, there's a lot of parallels in All Time Love Story. I think Last Young Renegade has a lot of parallels with the launch of Dirty Work. Yep. I think, again, leading with the dirty laundry of trying to like be so forward with how you've changed is just not the way to approach this fan base. Maybe most established fan bases, they just that's not that's not what they want. I think if you play Last Young Renegade, the title track next to some kind of disaster they're in essence so similar in terms of being like power pop anthems who like really just play right into what the fans love um and i think a lot of it was just leading with dirty laundry i think a lot of it was just like trying to be too moody and edgy off the cuff like people weren't people were already like a little on edge because again it's not a hopeless release people are so tied to like them being good on hopeless and bad on other labels yeah i think even though fueled by has launched the careers of so many other scene bands i think fans were still a little wary of them leaving um which is so funny because like like you like by this point i was in the industry so i like when i heard that they were moving to fueled by i was like oh this 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 is gonna be good let's go um yeah and i think I think Dirty Laundry was just a misstep in that way. But I think the guts of this album are still very solid. I'm so shocked that you still hate the rest of this record. I think Life of the Party is a great song. I think Last Young Renegade releasing that as a second single was great. Like that should have been the first, but second song. I can can hear you groaning. I'm going to keep going. Uh, I think is a great song that really grew on me. The, The live video for that song, I believe it was done by Ashley Osbourne. It's unreal it's one of the most beautiful live videos i've ever seen for any song um dark side of your room if i nightmares like there's a lot on the end of this record that i think is still very solid there's a couple songs that are very not good drugs and candy is probably my least favorite all-time low song that's ever been released which hurts me because i know it's one of alex's favorite songs he often references it as one of his favorite songs and i'm like we how uh but you're the one that's writing it so fine but i i think it's still a solid record and i think that you know it's interesting as they did the whole cycle on it i think it had a lot of the live success that dirty work did where i think the second they got in a room and played those songs for kids people really got behind it i think like nice to know you live rips like that like everyone responds so well to that song like i think there's like after like i said like they made a whole live video out of it that's fucking gorgeous like there's a lot that they've done live that people are still excited about Mm -hmm. and i don't know like i i again i'm not gonna like live and die by it being like my favorite (laughs) all-time low record but to me it wasn't and there was a lot of missteps in the launch of it but to me it's not some grand failure nice to know you is definitely personally my only redeemable song on the whole record um i think you could even go back when we were documenting when we did the podcast as a news podcast and we were documenting the rollout of this record we did it from the first single to the to the release and i think this was the only song where i was like okay maybe this could work i mean is is the rest of the record going to be like this but i just feel like they never get to the point on any of these 
these songs. The hooks always miss. The melodies kind of fall flat at every turn. It's funny you say Drugs and Candies is one of your least favorite songs. Like you said, it's one of Alex's favorite. But there's only two songs from this record that are in their top ten songs on Spotify. And it's Drugs and Candy and Good Times. Uh, Good Times has 31 million streams and Drugs and Candy has 20 million. But it, it just felt like such a misstep. Sonically, like you said, the rollout and everything reflected in the response to the album. I mean, like, the Future Hearts, obviously a lot changed from, in the industry as a whole, from Future Hearts to Last Young Renegade in, you know, just that kind of two-year time span when from 2015 to 2017 with streaming and all that stuff. But I, I still stand by that regardless of, you know, how many tricks you pull first week or anything like that, there is still some ounce of reflection of overall band momentum in first week sales. And to go from the 80,000 that they did with Future Hearts to the 33,000 they did with Last Young Renegade, like literally Neck Deep did 30,000 that same summer. Dance Gavin Dance did 30, I think one or 2,000 that same summer. All-time low should not be on the same level as Neck Deep and Dance Gavin Dance at this time. Like, it, 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 by the time this album came out, I was like, I don't even give a fuck what happens to All-Time Low in the future at this point. I mean, let's let's go. Just call it a fucking day. Like, you you made some scene classics. You had a renaissance that no one thought was possible. Like, you did a lot of cool shit. At this point, you blew two major label shots. There's no way you're going to break out and become a huge, huge star band at this point. But they, you know, they released a couple Lucys and singles after this, which I was completely hated some song that had like a birthday in it everything is fine um (laughs) it was just so 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 bad and i was i was just so so done with all time low over the last couple years but um to to move into current day we have two new songs from them some kind of disaster and sleeping in and they're gonna release a new album here in uh, a couple months or so called wake up sunshine and we have already talked about some kind of disaster on the show before, and I definitely want to get your thoughts on it. But these two songs and where All Time Low exists right now in current day tie into the conversation that I keep coming back to on these comeback episodes for the show is how do these bands grow up? I, you know, get very angry in the heat of a moment when a band really fucks up an album and they fuck up an opportunity to, to either maintain or become bigger than they were before. But now it's like, okay. This band obviously is not going to break out and become superstars. How do they survive? How do they become a main? How do they become an Every Time I Die, an August Burns Red? How do they grasp on to what's left of their fan base? Because they, they, they lost a lot of casual fans, but if anyone says All Time Low still doesn't have diehard fans, they're lying. How did they oh maintain those diehard fans that they still have? And I think these two new songs, Some Kind of Disaster and Sleeping In, are great propositions for what this band can do to continue to survive and continue to release albums kind of when they want to and keep playing music as they grow older. Because I think that them, along with so many other scene bands, don't know how to grow up. But Some Kind of Disaster, I felt like kind of missed the mark a little bit on the overall delivery. I don't know exactly what they were going for, but I think overall that song is a great kind of nostalgic look back 
uh, lyrically and thematically on the band's career and how much they've gone through and how much they've been through and actually all that they've accomplished and the longevity and the toll that it's taken on them as people. But it, it still felt like it was a kind of like an approach to too many different songs throwing it into one, but it was almost there. Like it was almost there. They were almost onto something. But Sleeping In, again, verses feel completely forced. I don't know what 1975 thing Alex is trying to do with his voice in there. He still <laughs> pulls it off to, you know, to a passable extent. I wish he would just try to never do that again. But that hook, oh my god, like it feels like old school all-time low, but it feels like all-time low in their 30s. And I didn't know what that sounded like until I heard this hook. And it feels like I... something that they can be as grown-ass adults. And I, you know, thematically, obviously, still kind of feels like they're trying to write teenage songs. But at this point, like musically, I'm okay with it because... There have been, you know, so many fucking musician bros that write about girls until they're in their fucking 60s and 70s and, you know, one night stands and shit like that. But I feel like this is the best proposition for how All Time Low can survive in current day. You know, the main did it as, you know, kind of their best impersonation of Third Eye Blind with American Candy. I don't know what All Time Low can kind of reach back into and pull back from, but it feels like they're on the right track here. To start with some kind of disaster, like I said earlier, I think the comparisons between that and Last Young Renegade, the song, they're so similar to me. Maybe not in like, you know, the technical music ways, but in in the message that they're trying to create and in like the general tone of the song, I think those are both examples of like songs that every all-time low fan can get behind. Mm. And I'll agree with you that like some kind of disaster. I was like, this is very solid. I again to me, I heard it and I was like, they made the right choice for a lead single. I was just like mm. so proud of them. I was like, yes, they did it. Good job. Like I was so yeah. excited. And then Sleeping In already is one of my favorite all-time low songs. Yes. I agree with you that it is just so addictive. I think it's great in that like again, these are all things I've kind of like read online or like ripped from other places but from what it sounds like the band is they saw last young renegade as their kind of like more moody alternative like not necessarily like a step aside but they like they looked at that record and they were like we're gonna make this more thematic to this like sadder moodier era and even having the next album be called wake up sunshine you already know that it's going to be something completely different right and both some kind of disaster and sleeping in just sounds so much brighter and i think that's the thing i think maybe what you're thinking for last year in renegade is it didn't sound like all-time low because it was so doom and gloom like even when they had upbeat songs there were some like whether it's like minor chords or like just the lyrics themselves like they didn't it didn't have that pop and that brightness that you had for so wrong it's right where so wrong it's right was like we're you know playing beer pong on the beach with our best friends from high school and i think that's some kind neon of in one sleeping. sentence <laughs> yeah exactly and i think this like you said is like them it doesn't necessarily just because you're writing about relationships doesn't mean that you're like you're writing about your teenage relationships you know i think he does alice himself does a great job as a songwriter of being reflective and not saying like hey this is where i'm at in my life right now he can write songs like getting in the head like the mindset of him at 17 or at 25 or you know in his currently in his early 30s like being 
able to write from those different perspectives isn't necessarily him trying to write for teenagers. It's him saying like, hey, here's like, here's this new concept. And I think Sleeping In is the perfect example of that, where it's like him writing as a guy in his early 30s about this like super saccharine early relationship where like you just want to be together all the time. And I think the energy of that really is like, added so much especially because again we have to talk about music videos again the music video for sleeping in is perfect it's so cute it's perfect oh my god every time zach plays video games with the fish i cry (laughs) laughing it's so alex brushing his teeth with the horse like it's just it's adorable and it's very them and i think all like i don't want to hype it up too much but already the rollout of these two songs I think this is it. I think this is the marriage they're looking for of like playing stuff that they know their fans will love while also reinventing themselves. And they have on every record, like talking through their catalog, like how many other bands have made this many tonal changes or, you know, moved around in the industry this much while staying at their core, like who they really are. Definitely. And I I don't think there's another band like All Time Low in the scene, for sure, hands down, especially their, their trajectory and the momentum that... 10 years ago, we were looking at dirty work at this point. And that's, that's wild to think about that. That was a decade ago. And, uh, you know, it took, it took them a decade and they somehow built up all that momentum again. And, and uh, some of it was a reversion, but it never felt like all time low wrote the same album twice. And that's kind of a crazy statement to make too. When you think about how bands are constantly reverting back to, you know, their their older sound and calling it a throwback, which is funny because I wanted to punch him in the face, but Alex said this album's a throwback album. And it's like, I swear to God, if another scene band calls an album a throwback album, I'm done. Like, I'm so done. Yeah. That, <laughs> like, that needs to stop. I agree with you. I think, I think you're able to say there's songs that will get our fan, our day one fans really excited without necessarily saying that something is an album from before like right. it's, it's overdone to me totally god i fucking hated that when he said it i'm like don't say that <laughs> just say we're growing up because that's what you're doing you're able to grow up you don't have to sound like you did when you were 19 anymore you know but i appreciate these songs and i did not think i was going to be able to say that about all time low in 2020 and i am actually looking forward to hear what the rest of, hearing what the rest of this record sounds like and uh i i I don't know where they go from here, but I am thankful that right out of the gates, you know, it seems like All Time Low have some sort of foundation that they're building to maintain what they have right now. And that's literally all you can ask for at this point for for a majority of scene bands. How do I maintain what I have right now? And I, I always go back to the main as a perfect example of how they built themselves an island while they watched the entire scene fall around apart them. But <laughs> it, you know, like they built that 8123 collective. And now that those fans have gone through their teenage years and now they're full blown adults and they have other lives outside of that band, but they're still so die hard in that way, they're not going to lose those fans at this point. Same thing with August Burns Red. Like that, I got the advance on the new August Burns Red record anyone who loves august burns red is gonna love that record and i it's crazy to think about how every time i die are the biggest they've ever been right now that is ridiculous they've been around since fucking 1999 
and uh, <laughs> but they keep continually writing music that their fans love. And you go to every time I die shows, and you see that fans love the fucking early shit. They want to hear stuff off of uh, the Big Empty and Hot Damn, but they also want to hear everything off of Low Teens, like front to back. And All Time Low have managed to somehow almost do that too, but in a downward trajectory twice. But fans still want to hear songs off of Dope Panic, Future Hearts, Nothing Personal, uh, So Wrong It's Right. And and in retrospect, I think Dirty Work has become this album that people are like, eh, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> and I and I think that's what Last Young Renegades will become as well. Oh, I think no. for that is, some reason... That is the stop sign, Mackenzie. That is... No, absolutely not. We will not look but back on that about, record fondly. Think about what you felt with Dirty Work. I think the same thing is going to happen. I think seeing those songs live is just, it makes it different. Have you seen All Time Low since they've started playing stuff from Last End Renegade? I have not. Like, back in the day, I remember people being like, okay, Guts is okay. Like, that's a good song. That's a good song. Okay, Heroes is a banger. Like, why wasn't that a single? You know, like, there were moments on that record that people still managed to latch on to. There was no... No moment that I saw from anyone during the rollout of uh, Last Young Renegade where they were like, okay, this is a good song. Like, I can latch on to this one. So, I mean, you know, again, no matter what I say, ever say on this show, I always hope for the best for every one of these bands. And I hope that I am very wrong when I talk shit about all of this music because at the end of the day, I want them to succeed. If Last Young Renegade has a renaissance and becomes some sort of Eh, that wasn't so bad album. I will be absolutely floored, but again, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> if I have to, I will fly out to New York and personally escort you to an upcoming all-time low show oh so you can see God. Last Guy Renegade songs go off. Okay, I, I'm down. I, I will, to- I will go to books. any show. It's happening. <laughs> I, w- I will go to any show. I, I'm totally All down. Right. Yeah, so very excited about this record. Before we wrap up, we got to do one more thing, which is the uh, mainstay of Note to Scene, First Week Predictions. And I know that you are not the uh, biggest uh, supporter of First Weeks and uh, don't necessarily have a huge opinion on them, but I got to know what's your rough estimate on what they do with Wake Up Sunshine, especially after hearing these two songs and seeing the positive response from them. It seems like it's going in a, in a, in a good way for them as much as it can right now. Yeah. I mean, here's my bit about first week predictions. It's all about where you put your priorities and as a band on, do you know, do you want to push more physical or do you want to push more streaming? Cause there's different things and again, without getting into the crazy weeds of label life, there's different things that you can do to push each. Everyone's going to say, well, why don't you just push both? It's kind of tough to push both. Usually you're doing one or the other. Either you're going and doing radio and doing interviews and everything to push streaming and push radio, or you're doing in stores and pushing pre-orders to push physical. Those are kind of the things you do. Mm-hmm. And just we're not at a point where streaming equates to physical in the same way. Like all of the different, like, you know, listening to something 10 times, blah, 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 blah. Just it, it just doesn't transfer the same way. Um, I think All Time Low haven't have had an interesting fan base where they're definitely buyers, as we can see. Oh, but yeah. they aren't buyers to the way that like obviously a 21 Pilots or even like a Paris fan back in the day. Like I remember sure. Paris fans buying 
all eight represses of whatever nonsense it was. So all-time low fans aren't to that degree, but they are, they, they'll still buy stuff. They still can be mobilized. And a lot of that was like, you know, even to go back to future hearts, they had some, again, I remember cause I unfortunately was a part of it. Um, they had something about like Polaroid packs that were in each CD and there were different ones. So you had to buy multiple copies to get all of them. So it's stuff like that. So it's like, are you going to spend your money doing things like that that are going to drive people to purchase multiple copies to bump up first week? Or are you going to try and drive people to streaming? Because again, that's just kind of the way the industry is going. Right. That's my spiel. <laughs> that all being said, I think we can, because they're on Fueled By I, and because they're releasing Sleeping In as this huge second song, I think that's what they're going to try to take. I think they're going to see, you know, maybe not necessarily like a pop breakout hit, they're on the cover of rock this right now which uh-huh. is one of the biggest like streaming rock playlists and a huge industry look you know even if yeah. you're you know if a rock this fan will necessarily listen to all time low to be able to say to the industry as a whole hey band that's been around 15 years is the cover of the biggest rock playlist is pretty impressive totally um so i think that's the angle they're going so to me they're not going to have this huge physical spike again i think they're trying to really cement themselves as a modern streaming band that has fans from all these different generations that will still have people screaming every single word in the front row but they can also get some casual listeners cuz so the other thing we haven't mentioned they have features from the band Camino, which are one of the biggest up and coming like alternative rock bands. They're yep. going on to uh, band Camino is uh, opening for five sauce. Mm-hmm. And then you also have black bear who is one of the, like, you know, again, one of those like scene straddling, not quite alternative hip hop artists. Yeah. Who also both of those bands have rabid fan bases and especially with Black Bear that are very much on the like the young female side, which would be perfect for All Time Low to hop on and do that. Totally. So if they can harness those two new fandoms as well, they might be in, they might be unstoppable in that sort of sense. Like I'm really interested to see how the rest of this album rollout goes and to see who knows, maybe there's a huge left turn with a third single or who knows what the rest of the album's gonna look like. But uh, the pessimistic optimist in me is still more on the optimistic side after these two singles definitely and i think the black bear song is really interesting i am like really really hoping that they actually tried on it and it's not like an album deep cut and they push it as the third single because he's got his song hot girl bummer which plays off the megan the stallion meme from over the summer and their song which is also a ridiculous story in itself how hot girl bummer completely outpaced hot girl summer as a hit uh, it's number five on Top 40 Radio right now, and it's gonna get to number one. Um, and it was a streaming hit before that, and definitely the biggest look of Black Bear's career so far, which is crazy because it felt like he was over. But as far as, you know, the streaming and everything you said about First Weeks, I don't disagree with you. But you mentioned how bands stream nowadays, and and they're just rock bands don't stream nowadays, you know, like they, they, that fan base for whatever reason hasn't figured out how to mobilize the way hip hop fans and pop fans do. And country kind of straddles the same line. It definitely still leans more towards physical. And I think that's a reflection of the demographics and the fan bases themselves, but rock bands don't stream. And we just see that time and time again, no matter how much streaming evolves and uh, 
there's no example of a non-breakout scene band where they, you know, give you more than like a 10,000 increase first week when it comes to streaming. So I don't know if doubling down on, you know, the biggest rock playlists on Spotify is even gonna help that much because Rock This has like 4 million something subscribers. Whereas, you know, if you get on today's top hits, where it's, which is Spotify's biggest playlist and it's got like 24 million subs, you'll have a song like... There's a rapper that's blowing up right now that's about to have a hit. His name's Jack Harlow, and he's got a song on the that playlist and Rap Caviar. And these like, like back in the day, today, today's top hit, today's top hits and Rap Caviar on Spotify is like the equivalent to an AP cover and a main stage at Warp Tour. Like those are the two <laughs> like kind of reflections of from our world to whatever it is nowadays. You know, like if you can get on today's top hits and rap caviar, you're you're good. Like, you're, and as long as you got good placement yeah. and it's towards the top, like that song is going to become a hit. Jack Harlow's gained four million monthly listeners totally. over the and, last and like three of, weeks. Well, and a lot of that too is that like streaming oftentimes is just very indicative of casual fans. Yes, like you need a like again playlists help a ton and algorithmically so much is happening behind the scenes at spotify that people just flat out don't know about i don't know about but so much help happens within that algorithm to feed you certain songs that are going to be breaking or or almost viral or you know wherever they might be so a lot of it's a lot of it's just that and i think that's the thing with rock music is that there's not a lot of casual fans you're either a fan of a band or you're not Whereas, like, in the pop world or in the hip-hop world, it's so easy to be like, oh, what's uh, Dua Lipa's new single? Like, that sounds great. I'll listen to that. What's Doja Cat putting out these days? Like, oh, sure, I'll listen to that. Exactly. And you don't really have that culture in rock music. Exactly. I don't know. I I listen to Sleeping In, and I'm like, mate, like, when we say crossover hit, I feel like people assume that that's going to be top 40 pop. That's not necessarily what I mean. I mean, you know, breakout in a way where you can start having casual fans again. Because I think yeah. that's really where all and low hit their stride on nothing personal because they started being able to have people that were like, oh yeah, waitlist like fucking rules. Like you'd right. listen and sing along with waitlist. Like I have normie friends who would never identify themselves as scene kids that still know and love that song. Totally. So I think sleeping in has that capacity. And I think where, you know, again, we're recording this on whatever day, whatever minute, I think seeing the way they grow and the way that they continue to work this over the course of the next couple months, things can change super quickly. They definitely can. And I'm, I'm very excited to watch how this cycle pans out. Um, as far as a first week prediction, I am definitely going to see another decrease. Um, you know, I don't know if they're bundling a tour. I don't even think they have a tour announced, but if they do, I, if they do bundle a tour, then that changes a lot of things. I think they could maybe mirror what they did on Last Young Renegade, maybe do a little bit more. Um, but if they don't bundle a tour, I'm definitely seeing more so around like the 20,000 first week range. 
um, as as far as I, I don't know if rock music can evolve into the streaming world, which is really interesting because emo and scene music launched streaming. That was the whole point of MySpace, and now those bands can't stream. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like shout out to fucking Hollywood Undead, and I set my friends on fire, and the Medic Droid. Those oh, those were your Medic Droid. Oh. Those were your streaming hits back in the day. <laughs> and now, you know, Warp Tour-esque-ish bands can't stream. I mean, but same with fucking Five Finger Death Punch. You know, like, those bands can't stream either when you're comparing them to your Lil Uzi Verts and your DaBabies and your Biebers and your Post Malones. And there's just, for whatever reason, the fan base doesn't exist on streaming for rock bands to move. So I'm interested to see how this shakes out for All Time Low. Like you said, totally agree. The Rock This cover is a great look, and uh, uh, the placement on there is is definitely going to help. We'll see how much the difference is in uh, first week and how much streaming bumps them up, because on Future Hearts, it was 5,000. Um, and that was in 2015. I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head how much streaming bumped them up on Last Young Renegades, but it was not a lot. But we'll see on this one, because a lot has changed even since that record came out. But end of the day, shout out to All Time Low. I know I go at this band a lot for a lot of different reasons, but they have (laughs) given me a lot and so many other people so much over the years, and they should definitely be remembered as a band that carried a movement in the scene because like they were the neon band and we just ranked our 10 biggest bands of the scene in 2020 and you know they're still in the top five like there's something that needs to be said about longevity and the way that they've been able to stick together as four dudes from fucking you know high school and even before that probably and how they've just stuck it out after all these years and all this time and they're still putting out music and it feels like they're in a good space mentally to just exist at this point so i'm happy for that i totally agree i mean this band has done like endless things for me in terms of like when i was still a teenager when i was you know getting into like music in terms of the business and industry sense and at college and then as an adult like being in the industry and still watching them thrive and really give back i think they're one of the best examples of a band that is in a community and a partnership with their fans instead of just delivering stuff to them or instead of just serving them it's really a full relationship and i'm excited to see where they go next like i i'm i'm so weirdly proud not weird i'm so proud to be an all-time low fan at like 26 when i first heard them on a mix cd my friend gave me when i was 13 like not many people say that right and there's something so wholesome about that and i'm glad that they've been able to give so much to so many people over the years and uh we'll see where they go from here but i'm uh i'm excited to see how any scene band grows up and all time low is definitely at the top of that list and i think this album is going to be very telltale of how they can exist in the future but We'll see. Mackenzie, thank you so much for being on. This was so much fun. There wasn't anyone else who could do this episode with me. <laughs> You're too sweet. Oh my gosh. I am more than happy to do it. And whenever 
Whenever you do the One Direction comeback episode, that's that's locked in for me. Hell yes. Okay, I got I got an Avril Lavigne <laughs> uh, episode in the pocket, and now an, a One Direction episode in the pocket. <laughs> oh baby, I'm excited. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you listeners so much for, for tuning in this week. If you have any questions about the show, please feel free to write in note to at gmail.com. I'm going to do a listener uh, email episode at, at some point, but um, if you enjoy the show, please go give it five stars on Apple podcasts. We're on all streaming services. Now the whole back catalogs on Spotify and uh, we'll see what kind of trouble we get into next week. I don't know what it is next, but uh, I'm sure I'll piss someone off. Thanks for listening, (laughs) and I'll see you then.